sadly, in these countries, they have agents who know what the deal is in the UAE. And quite often they will set them up with jobs over here and have them sign contracts while they're in their home country. And then they arrive here to find that there is no such job. They find they've got nothing, that their return airfare that they paid for is not a return airfare, it's just one-way airfare. That's when the fight for survival begins. That's Janine Oates, a member who's currently living in Abu Dhabi with her husband and has been working consistently for the past few years to help lighten the burden for hundreds of people who travel to the UAE for work. Many of these men, who move from countries like Uganda, Nigeria and Cameroon, are exploited by agents before they even arrive, which is devastating not only for them, but also their families who often rely on them for financial assistance. Through her various humanitarian efforts, Janine has not only helped a number of people find employment, but has been able to witness the miraculous growth of her ward, half of which is now made up by these faith-filled African members. She truly has, as Elder Patrick Kieran recently encouraged us to do, found a way to provide others with a refuge from the storm. In this episode, I chat with Janine about her involvement with this working community and what we can all be doing to help refugees and the vulnerable in our own country. Janine loves to sew, travel, work out, and go for walks. She has three daughters and six amazing grandchildren. And on a Friday afternoon, the Sabbath day in the Middle East, you'll likely find her cooking up a Ugandan bean and chicken soup with her adopted African sons, as she likes to call them. Welcome, Janine. I'm really looking forward to hearing your insights and your story, because I think there's a lot that you can share with us here in Australia. So thanks for coming along. I suppose to get us started, would you be able to tell me just a little about yourself? Obviously, you live in Abu Dhabi now, but you are from Australia. So whereabouts are you from? Okay, so I'm from Perth. I was born in Tasmania. My parents emigrated from England. In 1996, we moved to Perth, Western Australia, and we've been there ever since. Awesome. So from Perth, I've never been there, but everybody raves about how beautiful it is. It's nice and clean. It is. It's really pretty over there. It's just a long, it's isolated. You know, we're very isolated. Hmm. Such a long flight. And how long have you lived in Abu Dhabi now? So this, we just started our sixth year. It's our second time. The first time was from 2000 to oh, almost 2003. Our children were little then, so we were there as a family. And then we, mm-hmm. uh, my husband's company needed him back in Perth. And so we moved back to Perth with the idea that one day we would like to return. And we decided now's a good time to come and kind of set ourselves up for retirement and help our children out getting deposits for homes. Yeah, that's fantastic. What do you and your husband do for work? So my husband, I guess he works in management for a company called Siemens. I don't do paid work. I just do uh, volunteer work and humanitarian work, helping people pretty much on a daily basis. It's pretty much a full-time job. After our interview today, I'm heading out down to Abu Dhabi to a boy who hasn't been paid for two or three months and he's got no food and he's not a member. So he's not, I guess he's not on the radar for ministering brothers and sisters, although he is about to start having the lessons. He's been waiting for the lessons. Well, I'm excited to get into that and we'll we'll definitely chat about that a little bit later. But I guess I just wanted to start with, yeah, getting a feel for really what is it like to live in Abu Dhabi? What do you enjoy about the lifestyle there? What have you noticed that's really quite different to Australia? And yeah, we'll go from there. Okay. So what first of all, let's start with what it's like living in Abu Dhabi. 
It's amazing. It's so good. I guess they talk about the Utah bubble. There is a Middle East bubble, I think, and it's in it. We feel so safe. We feel physically safe. I think one of the things that we'll have to be vigilant about when we go home that we've become very lax with is locking our doors when we leave and not leaving our car unlocked. I can go out and have gone out many times, um, I guess, in the high labor camp areas where I'd spend a lot of my time helping people. The majority are men. There's the odd scattering of women who I guess work in the in the supermarkets and that sort of thing, but the women don't live in that area. It's just high-density men, um, you know, tens of thousands of men. And I can be on my own and go into a supermarket, walk on the street, and I not feel one ounce of fear, which I don't know, Maddie, how you are in Queensland, but in Perth, I don't go out my front door and down the street at night without fear. Mm. Alcohol is a bit of a problem here now, uh, but not to the extent that it is anywhere else. And so, you know, there's just not that worry of feeling vulnerable, you know, feeling threatened at all. Another great thing is that pre-COVID we could travel. We've taken the opportunity to go to many countries and have some amazing experiences. Also, I mean, the weather here is delightful. We have about three months of the year that's super hot and incredibly unbearably humid, but for the majority it's beautiful weather and so we can always get out and about and do things. Um, Yeah, that's some of the great things about living here. Oh, you're making it sound like a holiday. What's it like being a member of the church over there? Obviously, lots of expats. Yeah, so it's great. I think we are a very close-knit church community because we're all expats and we all are relying on one another to be a family. I think the ministering works particularly well over here. We kind of really, really look after one another. What have you observed about being a Christian in a predominantly Islamic country? Are there any differences that you've kind of had to adjust to? I know that you attend church on a Friday because that's their Sabbath. Is there anything else? Yeah, so we attend church on Friday. So we have our Sabbath first and then the next day of the weekend is our like our Saturday. It's not really hard. to The, the Muslim community are very tolerant of all religions. Last year, we were recognized as a as a religion. Oh, um, fantastic. There's a I mean there's an area in and it's actually in that area that I spoke of that's high density males that uh, where the churches have been granted land and, and so there's three or four churches all together. Ours where we are is out in an industrial area, which has been hard because um, with COVID the high density living areas is where COVID was sort of most prevalent. And oh, of course, it spread much more easily. Yeah. And so it took a lot longer for the churches there to be opened again. And we just opened a few months ago. We're allowed to meet for one hour per prayer meeting. They call it a prayer meeting because the Muslim, they don't have a church meeting as such. They just go and pray five times a day. And so for them, it was a prayer meeting that we have. So you've been working a lot with the African community and you talked about the chapel being close to that high-density accommodation where a lot of immigrants from various countries in Africa are living. From what you've told me previously, 
you know, these people are coming to Abu Dhabi to work and to provide for their families back home. Where are they predominantly coming from? Is it the northern African countries, which is it's geographically close? Or? The majority are from Uganda and Nigeria, Cameroon. Okay. Why are so many moving to the UAE? Is it mostly for just better economic opportunity or are some of them fleeing their home countries, you know, as in like a refugee situation? Well, they can't, they, they can't get refugee status here, so they're not coming as refugees. Okay. Um, they, in a, I guess in a loose term, they are fleeing their country because they can't find employment um, and they don't, obviously over there, they don't have employment, unemployment benefits. Uh, their leaders don't look after them well. They tend to look after themselves and their, their own people. And so, so, as in when I say their own people, I mean their own families. And so people in general are left to survive or, or flee, I guess. And sadly, in these countries, they have agents who exploit them, who know what the deal is in the UAE and that life is very hard for them. And quite often they will set them up with jobs over here and have them sign contracts while they're in their home country. And then they arrive here to find that there is no such job and they're on their own, you know. And so then that's when the, the fight begins for them to, or when I say fight, I mean fight for survival begins. They need to, you know, they've spent thousands and thousands getting here. They've loaned, you know, they've borrowed money. Their families are depending on them to send money home to help them, mm. to help them survive, to help their brothers and sisters in school and that sort of thing. And they get here and they find they've got nothing, that their return airfare that they paid for is not a return airfare. It's just one-way airfare. So then they're, they're stuck here. Mm-hmm. And then with COVID, it was harder with COVID because they um, they couldn't even get home. They had no way of getting home. Um, yeah, so it was really hard. They had no, you know, accommodation uh, was difficult. And then you've got the people that come and, and their jobs, you know, maybe they don't get paid every month uh, on time. And so it makes it hard. Goodness. And I know you've been doing a lot of work helping various people to obtain visas. Are they like working visas? No, so I can't help them get employment visas. They need to. So I, I help them try and find employment. So I'm, I'm always talking to different companies, seeing if they've got positions available and trying to set up interviews. And I'll take people to interviews and that sort of thing. I'll help them, um, you know, get suitably dressed and that sort of thing. Church does great. You know, they do the great self-reliance courses and teach them how to prepare for an interview and that sort of thing, how to get their CV going. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm there to support them. Sadly, they aren't a voice over here. It's difficult for them. And so if I go with them, they, they do tend to get a little bit more attention. And so I'll do what I can in that way. Uh, but employment visas, an employment visa they can only get once once they've got a job. And that's also, we know that's kind of taken care of. Okay. Sounds like you're wearing a lot of different hats in this situation. Mum, taxi driver, <laughs> advocate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. That's really wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I really, really love it. Is this part of your calling or just something that you've seen a need for and you're feeling it? No, it's not a calling. It's just what I do. Just someone has a need and I, if I, if I can help them, I will. It's amazing. How long have you been doing it? <laughs> Probably. About four years, I guess. The first year I was pretty oblivious to it. 
But um, since I became aware of of it, I think it was about it was about a year into when we were here that that the Africans first started coming to church. Then it started with one, and and then multiplied to three and four, and then it just you know kind of escalated from there. Okay, and once you were connected with some of them, you were able to meet a lot more within the working community, and and it, I guess it snowballed from there. Yeah, I don't know why I'm drawn to them. I'm drawn to these people. I love them with such a deep love, and I I don't understand it. I don't know why, but I just have <laughs> so much respect and love towards them. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice, and for those listening, won't be able to appreciate. But I can see it in your face. You've just got a big smile when you talk about these people. And yeah, it can be difficult to to serve. I mean, what you're doing is not easy, but it's clearly bringing you a lot of joy in return. So it's just wonderful to see. So you said that a lot of them are sending most of their wages home to their family. Have you been involved or has the church as an official organization been involved in organizing, say, temporal relief or, or food for these people? So we've had, especially with COVID, there's been a huge, huge welfare outpour of funds for food relief, for accommodation, for all that sort of thing. And and they've also received grants to be able to help not just our church, but other churches, because our church does really well. You know, as you know, I guess from the the people paying their tithes and offerings, um, our church does well. Well, a lot of churches don't have that and they've really, really suffered and their people have really, really suffered through this time and the church, our church has, um, through humanitarian aid, has been able to help them as well. It must be good to be on the receiving end of that tithe money. You know, you don't actually get to see where where the money is often going, so it must be nice to, to be able to see that it's really actually helping people. Yeah, it is. It's really amazing. And, you know, I think what is incredible when we teach these people and we reach the point where we talk about tithes and offerings. You know, there are so many of them that they've heard about it in the Bible, they've read about it, and they get so excited that, um, wow, you pay tithes? Well, can I pay tithes? And, you know, before they're even baptized, they are paying a tenth of their salary. And the tenth of their salary I'm talking about, um, they get the equivalent of like 250 Australian dollars a month. And of that, they send everything pretty much home if they, except for a little bit to eat and their tithing and their fast offering, you know, they'll, they'll be giving more than a tenth of their salary. And I'll say, no, you don't need to do that. You just need to give a tenth. Well, how about you give the balance as your fast offering? And they'll say, no, no, I'll give extra as my fast offering. And it's just like have, they have nothing. It is the widow's might. That's amazing. Wow. Seems like they just have this innate love for the Lord. Yeah, they do. They really do. So through your various humanitarian efforts with this community, a lot of them have joined the church in recent times. And I understand that you can't proselyte in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, so we can't proselyte. Um, we can't We can't invite people uh, to church. Basically, we've got to be very careful. So we can't go just talking about the gospel anywhere and any time. We can't walk around with books of Mormon and and pamphlets to give out type of thing. Um, But I can't tell you how many people we have coming to church, investigate what we'd call investigators coming to church. And it's simply because, you know, I might, I talk to everybody, Maddie. I talk to everyone that I see. Um, 
You don't have to say, oh, hey, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and would you like to learn about the gospel? <laughs> you don't have to say that. You just say, oh, hi, um, you know, I love you people, and I have so many sons and daughters that I call, you know, so many African sons and daughters here that have adopted me and that I've adopted them, and they come to my home, and, and they will say, you know, oh, how did you meet them or whatever? And I'll say, oh, I met them at church. Oh, you have a church? You go to church? Where do you go? Please tell me. I would love to come to your church, you know, because they are just such God-loving people and they they are here, they're lonely, and they want to worship God and they do worship God without coming to church. But when they hear that there's a church, you know, they're there and they love it and they they will do what they can to get to church each week. Um, a lot of them work, you know, 12 13 hours a day and they travel, they have to travel to work on a bus and, um, from, you know, to and from their, their companies have buses and they work long hours. Um, and they often work, well, they all work six days a week. Some work seven, but they will do what they can to come to church and they will sacrifice whatever they need to sacrifice to come to church. Wow. So, yeah, they're That's amazing. very inspiring. So, yeah, so we don't have to cross a line. Yeah, sounds like people are coming to you. <laughs> How many in your ward are actually made up of these African workers? Uh, we'd, probably half our ward. Oh, that's awesome. be African, I would say. Yeah. That's huge. And of them, you know, you have the people, you've got the ones that obviously aren't as strong they're strong spiritually, but not as um, mature in the gospel. There's some people that, you know, I've been a member 36 years mm-hmm. and they've been a member a year and their maturity in the gospel surpasses mine. They are just amazing. And, you know, they wow, they just, yeah, you know, you know that they're going to go home and you know that the Lord has great things for them when they, when they go home. Earlier, you said that during COVID, lots of people were wanting to learn and you've kind of got a backlog of baptisms. How many have you had recently, just to give us an idea? We were having baptisms every week. We actually made it so that it was once a month and then we'd have, you know, five or six at that time. We had one three weeks ago, but that was actually a a beautiful little Indian boy, Sergeant. And then last week, a beautiful girl from maybe, I can't remember, Sweden, I think she's from. She's a young woman and it was amazing. You know, Maddie, She, we've got quite a big young women's group and we had two young women who or three young women who are like two hours away and every single one of those young women were there for the baptism. It's beautiful. And then next week we've actually got a baptism of this lovely German man and he's like 70, I think. Yeah, so so we do have other nationalities as well. That's just fantastic. How amazing. Sounds like it is. The yeah, church it is. is just really being blessed amazing. in the Middle East. And and you've got the temple being built now mm. too. So that's exciting. Yeah, but we're not sure when that will when that'll start. But yeah, it's exciting times over here. It's amazing. You have a friend who you call your son and he calls you mum and you had in mind that you wanted to share his story. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the first time I met him, it was a weeknight. I was outside church with another one of my sons and we were chatting and this person came by and he looked like his spirit was broken. He was hunched over. His hair was overgrown. His face was quite overgrown. Um, you can see in his eyes, he was broken. And we chatted. He didn't have good English. He's from 
Cameroon and he's from the French-speaking part of Cameroon and his English was very limited. But we were able to kind of convey enough for him to come inside the church. I had to, you know, um, we had at that time, we had to be very careful about making sure that he wasn't a Muslim. It's that's a little different now, but we still we still have to be very careful because of the government laws. Yeah, law of the land. We're not allowed to teach to Muslims, and so he came in, um, and he came into a lesson actually, a baptismal lesson going on that he joined in on. You know, he'd actually mentioned in that discussion that he he hadn't eaten, he hadn't been paid, he'd worked for three months. He was one of you know, he was one that had come over on a broken promise by an agent over oh. in Cameroon that, you know, sold him some great story. And he'd started working for a company and he hadn't yet been paid. And he was starving. He was hungry and I wasn't with him, but he was taken to get some food. And from that night, I think I think that night was my last night in Abu Dhabi and I was heading to Australia and I think I'd popped out to say goodbye to some of my sons. And so I, I didn't see him again until I came home and I'd been away a month, I think, and I came back to Abu Dhabi and I went out to church one evening and when I say one evening, we have church, you know, we have something going on at church most evenings pre-COVID um, and I'd gone out to church and this lady who had taught him the lessons, uh, she said to me, oh, this particular man came out from the church and he came to her window and I was chatting to her and she said, oh, you remember such and such? And I looked at him and he was just glowing. He was literally glowing. He shaved his head, his beard had gone, he was standing straight. His eyes were shining. He had the biggest smile and his whole countenance had changed and he was so happy. And I just could not believe that it was the same person because it was so different to the person that I'd met a month ago. It was amazing. And he was baptized shortly thereafter. He would join us in teaching people the discussions and do it so well. He just was a natural. He was amazing. And he now holds the Melchizedek priesthood. He's back. He actually went home and he married. He actually married a girl from Finland and he's living in Finland now. Oh, wow. He's got a child and, um, you know, he's been through the temple and that sort of thing. Just, just amazing. Just incredible. So he's gone from Abu Dhabi with nothing to now living in Finland, married in the temple. That's fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, he did Pathway while he was here. And I think he's doing an an online degree with BYU now, which a lot of them are doing. There's so many people, so many of them that have had that opportunity to do Pathway. Um, So many of them are doing a degree. And when I say doing a degree, Maddie, I'm talking about in between their work schedule, they're managing to somehow pull off getting a degree. You know, they don't have, a lot of them don't have Wi-Fi. Uh, they're not allowed inside the church. We're not allowed inside the church except for those, those, um, prayer meetings on a Friday. And what? How are they doing it then? <laughs> well, they've got their, they've got their chairs set up outside church and they can connect to the Wi-Fi at church there and they, you know, in the winter, in the summer, whenever it is, they sit outside. They just sacrifice so much because they, they really want to do well. They really want to succeed and they, um, they just overcome any trials. You know, there were times when 
you know, we would go around and pick them all up and take them to our home so that they had our Wi-Fi. But these days the law is we can only carry three people total, including ourselves in our, in our vehicles. Okay. You know, that's the COVID rules. So it's made it a little bit harder. But, yeah, you know, they're just as such determined people, very faithful, very humble. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you had another story you Incredible. were going to talk about? I was going to tell you about a, another beautiful boy that he worked in a supermarket at the um, apartments that I lived in, and I'd see him often. And he would he he would always see me coming in with different African people, and he would look and you could see there was a question in his eyes, but we hadn't talked. And then um and then one day I I stopped and I introduced him to a couple of the boys that I had with me, and we got chatting. And he came to church. And he took quite a while before he had lessons. He he enjoyed just coming to church and learning. Uh, but then he had the lessons, and there was one day that I said to him. You know, have you considered serving a mission? Because he was struggling with what he was going to do next in his life. His contract was coming to an end and that sort of thing, his work contract. And he hadn't. And he went and talked to Bishop and he had a prayer and he felt that he should go on a mission. The ward got together and helped him. And he's actually now serving in Africa. He's in um, the Dominican Republic of the Congo. And he was there when... COVID broke out and he's Ugandan and Uganda was, they were one of the first countries to close their borders and he couldn't get home. There was him and I think two other Ugandan missionaries that were stuck in the Congo. And he stayed obviously because he had no choice, but it was such a blessing. And he knew, you know, he realizes that that was God's hand because his, the work continued to go ahead on Zoom. Um, and then it wasn't very long before he was back out on the streets teaching and he's you know he was I think he was he was out for just a few weeks and he was a zone leader then he was a district leader then he's now he's a AP to the president but he's just such a humble beautiful person that just loves his father in heaven and loves his savior so much yeah he did pathway and excelled and when he finishes his mission he plans on you know uh, doing a university degree Mm-hmm. Mm, but just amazing. How how old are these men? I mean, you said boys, so are they ranging from like eighteen up to the youngest. I think we've had is about ninety. Okay. Um, I will allow them to call me mom up until they're <laughs> about if they're over if they're over thirty four. They've got to call me Janine because I say I'm too I'm not I'm not old enough to be your mum anything over that. Um, so like most of them, the majority of them, kind of fall in the rank of about twenty five to thirty two thereabouts, I guess. Just they face so many so many challenges and sacrifice so much for their families back home. You know, we have no idea of just what true sacrifice is. I don't think. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you to just give us some insight and to help us see that we are very blessed in Australia, but there's scope for us, there's room for us, and even a responsibility for us to to give back, given the the privilege that we've been given. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for sharing your stories so far. They, these people that you're talking about, I mean, they have such faith. And you've already said that they sacrifice so much. What have you learned personally from the faith of the African community? Um, it doesn't 
matter how hard our trials are. It doesn't matter how difficult we have it, that as long as we put our trust in God, we will survive and we will conquer. They just trust him. They just 100% trust him and they they don't ever complain. You don't ever hear them complain about their adversities and about their trials. Probably one of the most humbling experiences that I was ever privileged to be involved in was teaching one guy. He worked long hours. Life was hard for him. like, And he gave this closing prayer in the lesson that we were teaching him. And their, their prayers are long and their prayers are so personal and so raw, you know. His prayer was like 95% gratitude for every blessing you can imagine under the sun. <laughs> and then at the end, there was probably 5% where he asked for blessings, but none were for him. Of course, they were all for other people. It was such a humbling experience to me to hear this guy's prayer. Yeah, wow. Well, I think I need to reevaluate my my prayers now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me well, it taught me a lot. It it really did teach me a lot. Yeah. It's just fantastic to hear that the gospel is touching so many lives regardless of situation or circumstance and that even through COVID technology, the the advances that we've made as a society um are actually are really blessing people to be able to learn more about God. And it's just, yeah, so inspiring to hear about the work that you're doing humanitarian-wise uh, and then the, the rewards that are following. Yeah, it, it, it's honestly, it is amazing. You know, when I was Relief Society president, we were, we were two wards, but our ward was split at one point there and it wasn't split in demographics, which is unusual. It was split with, we became a Tagalog ward and a, I guess a Western ward. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't matter where in Abu Dhabi yeah. you were, if you were Tagalog, you went to one ward. If you were Western, you went to the other ward. And it was a really, really hard time for me as Relief Society president because I was very close to sisters, both the Filipino sisters and the Western sisters. We were very, we we're all very close. And it was hard, Maddie. There were so many tears shed as a Relief Society president. I I grappled hard. I stopped. I stopped praying because I I didn't know was this of God or was it not of God. If it was of God, it, you know, that's fine. But I'm sad and I don't understand why. If it's not of God, then it means that the decision was of man. And I struggled really, really hard with that. And I finally, after about two weeks, and I realized. I needed to pull myself together. I, I said a prayer and I asked Heavenly Father, you know, to help me, to help me to understand the reason for the, the split, the reason for this decision. And I didn't get an answer, but the thought that came into my mind very, very clearly was Elder Bednar's talk on different types of revelation I don't know if you remember it, but he talked about three different forms of personal revelation and he talked and light, I think he talked about, and he said that, you know, one was when you walk into a room and you flick the light on and you've got instant light and he's talking about instant revelation. And he talked about another one of the the sun, I think the sun coming up and just slowly yeah. seeing that yeah. light. And then he also talked about one of being in the thick, thick fog 
and just having to put one step in front of the other. And that's what I saw. That's that's the thought that came into my mind was this thick fog. You can't see anything. You just walk. And that was the impression I got was just have faith, just keep walking. And I was grateful for that and I closed my prayer and that was enough for me. And it was months later, Maddie, that I remember I was in the car I was driving and I, I quite often have my prayers in the car and I talked to Heavenly Father. I was talking to him and I was still Relief Society president. And at this stage, I had quite a few African sisters and a lot of African men that I was working with. And I remember saying to Heavenly Father, I don't know how I could have done it. I don't know how I could have done it with the, so the Filipino sisters were so physic, uh, spiritually strong. They did require a lot of temporal mm-hmm. assistance. But spiritually, they are just so humble and so faithful They're and so obedient. Very spiritual people. Very yeah. spiritual people. And I remember saying to Heavenly Father, I don't know how I could have looked after them with their temporal needs. I just got this light bulb moment where now you understand, Janine. Oh, and it was like, wow. wow. And right now, I'm just tingling, thinking oh. about it. It was amazing. It was like, wow. It's like, Back when the church, I mean, the state presidency had no idea. We had, at that stage, we had one or two Africans had just started coming and we had no idea what was going to happen. But that's, that's the way it was, Maddie. If the ward needed to be changed the way it did, because the Filipino members were so spiritual and so humble and they were ready to stand alone. And there were Mm -hmm. other Tagalog wards in the state that were just doing so amazingly well. And they just needed the confidence to do the leadership roles themselves because mm-hmm. they would generally hide in behind us and rely on us, and yet we weren't the spiritual giants. They were the spiritual giants. Yeah. And their ward, their, their Tagalog ward today, is it is such a strong ward. They have just gone ahead in leaps and bounds, and you just see the Lord's hand in things. You just see how he knows what he needs for his people and when he needs it. And we just need to trust in that. Yeah. Uh, that was really powerful, Janine. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that he, he obviously had, has the foresight to see exactly the potential of, of your ward and how many people have embraced and will continue to embrace the gospel. I loved hearing about the work that you're doing and the impact that it's having. And I think there are a lot of similarities between some of the logistical things that you're helping with people with, you know, getting them to appointments, helping them with visas, to the work that the church calls of its members in, in terms of helping refugees. Um, and I, I know it's not technically appropriate to label these people as refugees because they're not always, you know, fleeing war-torn countries or anything. But in terms of the the things that they're needing when they arrive, are uh, similar to the the needs of refugees that arrive in Australia. And we do get a lot of people moving here from places like Afghanistan and Iran and Syria and the like. And yeah, I I was thinking about this in preparation for this conversation, talking about it with um, my husband and a couple other people, just that um, we've had lots of talks over the years, you know, from general authorities pleading for us to help refugees and and the vulnerable in our local communities. But it can be difficult to do. I think there's maybe a lack of awareness about what kind of things people might need when they arrive in Australia. And unfortunately, 
given that, you know, asylum seekers who come to Australia are often placed in immigration detention centres when they first get here, uh, and, you know, just like the general government policies, some of the discourse around refugees lends itself to the idea that they're actually criminals <laughs> when, in fact, they're often fleeing war-torn countries or just moving here with their families hoping for a better life. And, well, I, I can't speak for the whole membership of the church in Australia, obviously, but I I know that I could be doing more. And I'm sure that as as local members, there is more we could be doing to reach out to these people. You know, they they too are sons and daughters of God. As we learn, you know, in, in Second Nephi, all are alike unto God. And we should be seeing these people as our as our brothers and sisters. So I'm not saying that, Janine, you see um, refugees with this kind of uh, stereotype at all. But I am curious, based on your involvement with um, these African members, how have your welfare activities and seeing how these people have blessed the ward changed the way you now see and interact with people? And how has it changed your perception of refugees in general? You know what, Maddie? I think that I've always had a loving heart for anyone anyway. But, you know, my mum, my mum used to always say that even the worst person has a, a good side, look for their good. And I think that's it. I think, you know, you mentioned about, you know, why some of them might be here. And I think it's not up to us to look at that and judge. It's up to us to, you know, let God be the judge of that one. And I think, yes, we need to be a little bit careful, I guess, and, and protect ourselves a little bit. But in light of what I've experienced here, what I've learned is that even if you can't give anyone anything, even if like my the people that I help, they know that 99% of the time I won't give money. I will drive them places. I will take them to appointments. I will um, buy food for them. But you know, Maddie, the one thing that they love is to be felt that they are validated, to feel that they're loved, to feel that someone cares about them. That's sometimes enough. That's often all they need. And I think in, you know, when I think of all the things that we can do for our refugees in Australia, I know in our ward, some of the refugees that were coming to our church, they were teaching them having English lessons for them. And I think that's a wonderful thing that we can do. And, mm. you know, when we, and the thing that they can do for us is that they can teach us how to cook their food and they love doing yes. that. You know, so we could <laughs> have them that. in the, in the church kitchen or we can have them at our house if people are comfortable. Like for me, I'm comfortable with having people in my house. I, my, my door is open and, and, and my African people know that my door is open. They love to come in. They love to cook and they want to feel part of a family. It's part of that feeling of, inclusion that they love as well you know so if we can take them to their interviews if we can take them to the appointments that they have scheduled for you know with authorities because I'm sure they have they must be meeting with different authorities trying to get their refugee status sorted and that sort of thing and so it's maybe not even the physical things they need but it's just the emotional they're coming to a strange country just knowing that there's someone there that's willing to give them a hug, willing to chat to them, willing to take them places and willing to spend time with them and not be frightened to do it. And if there's a language barrier, it's okay. You know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, there's a lovely man that's coming to church. His name's Raja from India. Yeah. And he, he can speak very few words in English, 
But I felt really inspired. I, I just kept getting this prompting, invite him home for lunch, um, you know, invite him home after church. And I was bringing one of my other sons home and my husband was going to be home that afternoon as well, which is unusual because he's not always there. But I just felt such a strong prompting to invite this guy to home. And I'm thinking, Heavenly Father, I can't even talk to him. Anyway, I just felt, no, you need to. So I went and I chatted to him and and as best I could tried to convey that I wanted him to come with me <laughs> in my car to, Without being creepy. to our house for, <laughs> for the afternoon. Yeah. With, and, um, anyway, we got we got the message through and him and these other two guys came over. And honestly, we had such a hard time conversing, but it was okay because what he felt was the love and the unity and the inclusion and he enjoyed cooking with us. Aww. He enjoyed cleaning up with us. You know, we played a game of um, Jenga, is it, where you yeah, have the, the blocks stuff, stacked the up blocks. and you've got to try and put, yeah, you know, yeah. we yeah, we played that. And, you know, there's things that you can do. You don't, language is not a barrier. And when you think about little children, you know, sometimes, you know, little children from all different countries, they play together. They don't, can't understand a word each other says, but that doesn't they matter. include one another and they all get on well and it doesn't matter. And so I think that's it. It doesn't matter. Don't be frightened that you don't understand them. Don't be frightened that they look different. But we are all the same. As you said in Second Nephi, we're all the same. We're all one. There's so much yeah. we can do just just by being like the Saviour taught us to be, just by serving one another and loving one another and being kind to one another, you know. Oh, you just gave some fantastic tips. Invite people over for dinner, drive them to their appointments if they need, say hello at church. I mean, moving to a new country would be huge and yeah, I just love that you're not afraid to go out on a limb and <laughs> talk to somebody that can't even understand you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just important, I think, to be a disciple of Christ, to try and exemplify our Savior in all that we do. And yeah, don't be frightened. Just follow the promptings. Do you have any practical advice for how somebody could reach out to, say, a, a refugee community? Any tips on on getting over that barrier? Because I think it can be hard when we're, we're so busy yeah. caught up with, you know, family and school, work, demanding callings already. Mm. Um, I guess there, there is an organization is there that takes care of the refugees over there, I, I assume. Is that right? Um, I think there's lots of little uh, state-based and, and – more community-based organizations. That's a good start. Maybe go there and say, what can I do to help? You know, what, here are my hands, put me to work. And that way you're getting to meet them. And whether they're Muslim, whether they, whatever religion they are, I would never be frightened to say, hey, would you like to come to church? That's one thing I've learned over here is it doesn't hurt to invite because what's the worst thing they can do is say no. Yeah. Do what we can. And sometimes it's hard. You know, we're all in different seasons, right? You know, I'm older, I'm not working, and my husband is retiring. And we do have grandchildren, so our life when we get home will be busier. Mm. But we'll still have time on our hands, I hope. But then there's young mums who are very busy. And it would, you know, to to 
find time to do things is probably really hard. So I think, you know, we do what we can, right? Yeah, we do what we can. <laughs> when we can. I did like your, your idea about having someone over for a meal. I mean, even if it's just somebody new who's visiting the ward that you've not met before, you're going to be eating a meal anyway and maybe catering for one extra person isn't too hard. If that's if that's something that you could do, then, yeah, maybe that's your contribution for that, that time and season and then maybe when you have more time later yeah. down yeah. the line. You can get a bit more involved. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of your experiences. It's been great to see how how it's possible to serve those in, in our local communities, but also the the spiritual impacts that that can have, and it just you know the the snowball effect is also beyond mm. you. Like this is God's work, and it's amazing to see it unraveling yeah. in, in the Middle East there where you are. Well, the final question that I had was, it just relates to the title of this podcast, which is Choosing Faith, to acknowledge that being a disciple of Jesus Christ and the things that that asks of us can be challenging, and it kind of does really require active effort. So what does choosing faith look like to you? As you said, faith is an action word. It's a doing word, right? And so we're taking time for people, loving people where they are in their journey, not you know, sometimes we want someone to be a certain way or behave a certain way or whatever, but just loving them where they are right there on their journey. And you would relate to that as a missionary, I'm sure, falling in love with people <laughs> yeah. who were, you know, who were in different stages of their journey. Um, choosing to believe that God is forever present in my life and in their lives you know, knowing that, just having the faith to know that despite their trials, my trials fade into insignificance when I think of their trials. So I'll say theirs. You know, when you see their trials and their hardships and their sacrifices and their battles, just knowing that they know that God is aware of them, that's choosing faith. And I, I see it every day, Maddie, how they choose faith over fear. They don't fear because they know that God is at the head of their lives. I think that's what choosing faith looks like to me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you found Janine's stories about her friends in Abu Dhabi interesting. Perhaps you've been inspired to find a way that you can get involved to help the vulnerable in your own community. I know this conversation has certainly got me thinking about what I could do to help. If you enjoyed this interview, then please share it with a friend or leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have anyone who you'd like to hear on this show, you can get in touch with me on Facebook or Instagram under the handle Choosing Faith Podcast. See you next time.